Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This is Shabbat Shira. This is the Shabbat of the song, uh, and it is the song at the sea. This is one of the uh, oldest pieces of Hebrew poetry extant. It's one of the oldest pieces of of Hebrew literature that we have. The language is archaic. You have to know Hebrew grammar really, 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 really well to know that. Um, but the language itself, the grammar itself, gives us some indication about how old this is because already forms that are there in the poem are out of use by the time other parts of the Torah are written. And grammatical forms that are there in the poem uh, are already out of use uh, when we see other parts of Torah written, even early parts. So one of uh, our oldest pieces, it is absolutely glorifying the victory of yud heh vav at the sea. And uh, part of what is uh, that, and that victory is over whom? Okay, so, so, I never know how to spell this in English. I don't know. Um, so paro is, is one place we, yeah, that Yudhe Vafe experiences and demonstrates power and victory. What else is Pharaoh called other than paro? Pharaoh's actually called Mitzrayim. So, kind of the embodiment of Egypt is the one who not only rules and who makes decisions on behalf of all of Egypt, but who also was considered to be God. Right. Considered to be God. So this is an ancient form of poetry in which Yudhei-Vavhei is the deity being praised in the song for God's victory over Mitraim, over Paro, who was a deity himself in Egypt. What you might not know is how do we talk about sea, S-E-A, song at the sea? Yam. Yam. Good. So Yam, you would have no way to know this. But an ancient Canaanite god. Right? Yam is an ancient Canaanite god. Yam is sea. Sea is associated in the ancient world with chaos. Talk to me about Bereshi. Talk to me about Genesis. How is the universe created by yud heh Comes out of Tohu Vavohu. And how is Tohu Vavohu dealt with? God makes order and distinguishes. God distinguishes between Or and Choshech, light and dark, right? It's in pulling things apart and making them distinct that we get the created world. The created world is all about order from chaos. The victory, if you will, of order over chaos. What we see is 
uh, a remnant, and we looked at this in the Genesis text, we see a remnant of that in the Canaanite mythology. It's still there in Genesis, right? When we talk about to home. Ruach Adonai Merachefet Al the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the water, right? And God essentially conquers Tehom, the deep, by dividing it. Half goes up, and from there we get rain, and half is below, and from there we get groundwater, right? So in the ancient world, if you think about it, rain comes from the sky, and if you dig deep enough, right, there's water below the ground. So in the ancient world, their cosmology is that the watery mess that was before gets divided into the waters above and the waters below. And if you want to undo creation, what do you do? You bring those back together, right? Hence we get the flood, right? If it's going to be destroyed, it's going to all become water again, which will destroy all life. So I'm just familiarizing us with the vocabulary and the imagery and the metaphors that we often read right over when we read the song at the sea. Because we read it as a translation into English into what we understand to be C-S-E-A. So we really need to understand in the ancient Canaanite mythology what C is really about. C is about chaos. C is about, um, we'll just leave it at chaos. To home, the depths, right? This is about water as well. This is invoking the ancient goddess Tiamat. Uh, in Canaanite mythology, Tiamat is destroyed. Uh, she is conquered by the god. This is patriarchy, right? So this is the matriarchy being replaced with patriarchy. She's cut in half. Her half of her body becomes the firmament and half of her body becomes the earth. So this is this, this Genesis imagery of, you know, splitting the waters is very early and is there from the victory of the God in the Canaanite pantheon over the goddess, the creatress, Tiamat. All right. So what are we going to see here with water? What's going to happen in our story with water? It's going to split, right? So we kind of have to, and there's going to be walls of water on either side, and the the Israelites are going to walk on the Yabasha, on the dry ground. So you you need, I mean, it's a a reworking that's beautiful, but but you, you split the water, and then you get safety, and you get dry ground. Okay. So one more um, is that Baal... We know Baal, right? Who's Baal? It's a local god. A local god. Very local. So God, Baal is one of the main chief gods of the Canaanite pantheon, associated with storms. Um, so storm, storm god... Lots to do with wind, chaos. chaos. So storms are created by wind, water, right? So all of these are present in the Israelite imagination as they are becoming a people. 
as they are writing their sacred responses to their, and their poetic sacred responses to their mythic experience, the imagery they're going to use, because they are Canaanites emerging into Israelite identity. So that we can more, more better appreciate some of the imagery here uh, at the sea. And we're going to look at, so now that we kind of have what that means for folks in that region as they are emergent as a people, um, we're going to look at how they reconstructed these ideas. Because that's as important as knowing what they were working with and what that meant to them. As important is what was the change? What was the Israelite innovation on the scene? What's the theological and moral and spiritual reconstructing that the Israelites did of the regional symbols and stories? Okay? All right. So let's... I don't know how how much they share with ancient Egyptian mythology, but right. So it's it seems to be Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia is really where those are dominant. I don't know enough about Egyptian ancient Egyptian, you know, myth or story to know. Correct. They, right, so their their experience of the power of the divine as it manifested in their world changes how they relate right to the symbols that they have and have had for generations. Right, that's that's the beauty of an evolving religious civilization is that it evolves and changes. Based on right our experience, our, our understanding, as related to experience. Okay, let's look at chapter fourteen. Verse ten. Three So we're leading into uh, the moment at the sea. The people have come, right? They've been sent out of Egypt. They borrowed gold and silver from their Egyptian neighbors, uh, and they are, right, coming to um, this moment at the sea. Uh, but So we want to back up just a little bit. So here they come, and what starts to happen, verse 10... Bert, you want to read? As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them. Greatly frightened, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us be and we will serve the Egyptians, for it is better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? But Moses said to the people, have no fear. Stand by and witness the deliverance which the Lord will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will battle for you, 
You hold your peace. <laughs> you hold your peace. Tachrich Shun. So, this is an incredible moment for the Midrash. This is an incredible moment for Kabbalah and all of Jewish spiritual writing, thinking, and teaching ever since. Um, the moment is that the people are coming to the sea. That's what's in front of them. And then Pharaoh and his chariots are coming up behind. The classic between a sea and a hard place. <laughs> yes? So they are in the classic moment of tension, this classic moment of, uh-oh, is one way we could talk about it, right? There's nothing forward and there's certain death back. What do they do, Reuben? You had a reaction to what they did. What did they do? Shockingly. Actually, what I, I, I just love this phrase that, was it for one of the graves in Egypt that you brought us out? <laughs> 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 How Yiddish? What, there were in cemeteries there that you brought us out here? They did the same thing they did once they got to the desert. They kvetched. They had kvetched. <laughs> and, and actually, this is sort of, you know, I, I love this because to me, this is one of the central aspects of Judaism for me is that, you know, here they're being told you need to have faith in the face of adversity. <laughs> And that's sort of throughout the whole Sinai experience, Exodus story. So they are, they are trapped, and the first thing they do is panic. And when we panic, what do we do? We look for someone to blame. We look for somebody to pin it on, right? Because we get so afraid that we immediately seek some kind of control. And what is one of the ways we feel like we have control? We start to point fingers, right? It's your fault, right? And that makes us feel better. It's like a pressure relief. Um, so it's not helpful. It's not constructive, but it makes us feel better. So that's what we tend to do. This is, like Rick said, for me, I love this scene because it is paradigmatic of the human experience. This This is exactly what we do. We love to think we're not them, that we would not turn on Moshe. We would trust Right, but let's think to last week. Let's think to last night. Let's think to where where where's the the last moment we experienced? Uh oh, right, and immediately look to where can I where can I put that? Who can I put that on? What argument can I make? Because I'd rather fight about something than actually feel the fear. And maybe part of it is they're looking to Moshe. Like certainly you have a plan. <laughs> You know, you did all this to get us out of here, and so we're not going to die here. You must have. They're looking to him like now, now what? Well, I, they're looking to him, but but I think it's like Reuben said. They look, they they talk to him with such sarcasm that they seem to be suggesting we thought you had a plan, but clearly it's because you wanted us to die out here. I'm waiting to see the word schmuck. <laughs> right. Right? So, because we, because there are plenty of graves in Egypt, right? But, but, but you wanted what? Us to like be buried out here by the water? Like what? Right? So it's this dripping sarcasm of, you must have had a plan, but now, evidently, right? So, so Moshe says to the people, right? Which is really an amazing leadership response. Don't be afraid. Right? He does not become defensive. 
He does not. He, he stays a true, loving, responsible leader and says, Al-Tira'u, don't be afraid. He understands what's driving their reactions, their sarcasm. He understands why they've rounded on him. He completely gets it that this is fear and that it's legitimate, right? You've got an ocean or whatever, a sea in front of you and chariots coming up behind you. It's understandable that they're a little concerned. Al-Tira'u, don't be afraid. Hitiatzvu, right? Stand still, right? This is the the word that we talk about, you know, presenting themselves like as pillars, like you plant a pillar in the ground, right? Just be still. Or ooh at Yeshuat Adonai. And see the saving, right? We don't, we, we, we don't love this word as Jews, right? We stay away from this word as Jews. It is our word. God as savior is our language. It's our imagery. It's our word. It has been reconstructed by another tradition. And so we get all, woo, Yeshua, that is deliverance. That is God as saving power. It is our language. Stand still and see the saving power of yud heh vav that God will do for you this day. Because Mitzrayim that you see today, you will never see again. The spiritual tradition takes this also as a very important teaching. When we panic, our instinct is to blame, to lash out, to do whatever we can to try to feel like we're regaining some control. And the answer to that, the antidote to that is what? Shut up and stand still. If we can just settle down and stand still and be quiet for a minute, um, right? We can see that we can experience the saving power that works on our behalf and the Mitzrayim that we face down, we will never see again. It'll look different next time. <laughs> right? Our, our, our experience is next time we confront Mitzrayim says, it's not that you'll never see Mitzrayim again. That's the pshat. That's the simple reading. If Torah is true for all time and spiritual foundations on which the universe stands, it must mean much more than that. And for the rabbis, it means the Mitzrayim that you see today, once you shut up and stand still and experience Yeshua, you will never see that Mitzrayim again, that Egypt again, because you will have changed. So you might experience something similar, but it's not going to be exactly this one it will be something else. Bert? The, uh, the English here says, hold your peace. So I was looking for the word shalom, which isn't there. So what 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 is the sense of the Hebrew here? Shut up. Shalom. Yeah. Uh, Shut up. Okay. Um, <laughs> seriously? Seriously. Like, like ho- holding your peace means stop talking. Stop freaking out. Stop. <laughs> right? So... Um, it's it's stronger than hold your peace. It's stronger than hold your peace. Yes, but it but it's not pejorative or angry, right? It's think of a child having a tantrum, right? You, I mean, 
Okay. <laughs> the way you're supposed to do it is not what I'm about to say. But like, but our reaction is to go, shh, shh, it's okay. Right? Shh, shh, shh. Like, it's okay. Like, st- settle down. Right? Stop screaming. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Right? So, so shushing them is part of calming them down. No. Taharishun. The last word of 14. All right. It seems that Moses is, it seems to have more strength, more power, more control than he does later on. Yeah. Yeah. He's younger and he's newer in the job. Maybe he's more optimistic that once he gets his people out of slavery, he's going to be able to help them reconstruct, right, their own experience of the world. He's clearly an optimistic, like you said, calm, strong, in-control leader at this point. I think the people wear Moses down. Yeah, they haven't revolted against him a bunch of times yet. I think they wear him down. I think by the end, he's he and God have both had it. <laughs> right by the end, God God's done. God says, they're going to drop in the desert. I'm done with them. These are not the ones who are going to make a promised land happen, right? So um, I do think we see Moshe get much more frustrated later on. Understandably, right? Leading this people that keeps rounding on them understandably wears him down. All right. <clears throat> so let's go to 15. So what is, so now we get this very interesting uh, punctuation by the divine into the story. Bert? Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Which is interesting because Moses Let's said... Let's keep reading. <laughs> okay. Tell the Israelites to go forward and you lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots and his horsemen... Let the Egyptians know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Okay. So Moshe says to them, calm down. See that God will deliver you. You will never see me triumph again. You'll never see Egypt again. God will fight on your behalf. Y'all just hang on. Shut up. Right? So, I mean, shush. It's going to be okay. Um, Chill. Thank you. Chill. So... The very next sentence is God talking to Moshe saying, What is this that you're calling out to me? Speak to the people Israel and let them move. Let them go forward. That's right. So Reuben asks the obvious question, uh, why is this God's response of why do you cry out to me when Moshe doesn't seem to be crying out to God? He actually was very, uh, uh, assertive. He said, don't worry. That's exactly right. So for the rabbis who are interpreting this text, it, it's not an answer to Moses calling out. Now, we could say, we who know the documentary hypothesis, we have lost a part of the story. Here is a ragged seam where two pieces of te- you know text are put together and something fell out, <laughs> right? We're, we're missing a scene here where Moshe turns to God and says, right, Tevya, you know, master of the universe, you know, what, how can this, you let this happen to my people, right? 
we've lost that scene. But but for the rabbis, they understand this as it's not that God is saying to Moshe, right, quit crying out to me because because that didn't happen. What God is saying is, don't cry out to me. Mazetitake, like what? What do you think calling to me is going to do? Speak to the people and tell them to move forward. Is this just bad grammar? <laughs> <laughs> so matitzak, ma can be used as the what in Hebrew can be used as why. Yeah. Kind of what's up? What's up with you calling out to me? Right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's so for the rabbis, right, they're saying it's not that Moshe did something that God is now correcting, which is probably what happens. We're missing a scene, but whatever. They're saying God initiates to Moshe instructions Basically, don't don't think calling out to me is going to affect... In other words, they're waiting for something to happen. And God is saying, don't call out to me. Talk to the people and tell them to move forward. Just right before, in, um, in verse 10, it says, similar language, but it says, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So I thought your war was going to be that God was really talking to Moses as sort of a representative of the proxy that was really talking to the people, saying, don't cry out to me. But since God doesn't talk to the people directly, he's really talking to Moses. So, so Moses didn't cry out. We know, just a the verses before, the people cried out. So possibly this is Moshe as an embodiment of the people, as a leader of the people, as Pharaoh is of Egypt, and God saying to Moshe, right, tell them, Essentially, not to cry out to me that they right, the that they need to move forward. Crying out, going crazy. Someone <clears throat> talks to the parent and says, "Hey, like you know, just sort of talking to you for the family here." So, for the for the rabbinic tradition and for the mystical tradition, this is God saying to Moshe, "I can't affect the miracle until the people move forward." Right? That calling out to me, don't. Turn to them. Speak to Rabbi Rami Shapiro has a beautiful uh, interpretation of this pasuk, of this, um, of every word of this pasuk. And he says, um, when he's saying, when Moshe says to them, take courage, right, and, and look, like, look differently, stop panicking, and really see. You can't see your options when you're panicking and when you're looking around for somebody to blame. That why do you cry out to me? What is this business crying out to me? Is that this is another part of what actually happens for us, right? Is that we, we look this way and say, do something, right? We, we, we want something to like change right now on our behalf. And, um, this is what we do. And that God is saying, stop waiting for a miracle. You have to confront your fear, hold your peace. Really confront it honestly, and then you, you have to be ready to move forward. And so God says, speak to the people, and Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, speak, don't argue. Speak, don't yell. Speak, don't command. Tell them, don't be afraid. Your fear is natural, okay? Absolutely understandable that you're afraid. Stop resisting and, right, 
and allow them to move forward. And Rabbi Shapiro says, let them, not make them. Let them. Don't think you're the one responsible for all of this. They have to move forward. They have to take those steps themselves, right? Um, as long as, as long as it's about conquering the fear or conquering the situation, right? That's not what's going to actually affect a new possibility opening up. It's that he can't drag them. He can't force them. He can't make them. He can't do it for them. Speak to them and let them move. That is what opens what was not seen a moment before and affects essentially the ability to be both in the midst of the sea and on dry ground uh, at the same time. Did I see a hand? Oh, I see lots of hands. Okay. Yes. So as I think back about who wrote this and, and for what purpose, so I, it could have been, and the Israelites came to the sea, and the sea parted. The Israelites were in the desert, and the monarch mm-hmm. came. And the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, and boom, here come the Ten Commandments. But every time, they are tested, and they just don't get it that when are you going to trust that you're going to be taken care of so it becomes much more dramatic than just a nice little story that this all this was provided the exact moment before they even thought they needed it they had to be pushed and they failed every time and the way opens up but right, mm-hmm. they go right back. Right. Not not long after, right? So it seems like rather than being passive, you have faith and active. Then that helps in partnership with God to allow the miracles to occur. Correct. Absolutely. Well said, Sheldon. It's the first time. I think it's the first time that God tells Moses that He's stiffening the hearts of the yeah. Egyptians. Before this, it was said many times, but not. This is the first time maybe that Moses realized that God is is organizing, affecting their thoughts, and, and but he has things in control. Nice. So, so the curious. so the people experience another aspect of the divine. Right. Right. That. That and part of this tension Moses is that. Said, are you telling me all along you've been stiffening the hearts? Right? So it's it's interesting to see who knows what when. It's a very nice, very close reading, Sheldon, because often we just kind of go through it, right? But when you start to notice, wait, 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 he he hasn't been told that before. He what is Moshe experiencing that's different in this moment? It's it's a whole nother level, right, of experiencing of experiencing the story. Lois, did you have your hand up? Yep, Mati Don't just, don't just call out to me. Right, you know that joke about, you know, the guy who 
is in the water and right a boat comes don't worry about it god's gonna save me right then the marines come don't worry about it god's gonna save me a helicopter comes don't worry about it god's gonna save me and then he drowns and confronts the almighty uh you know and says i called out to you i had full faith right that you were gonna help me and you let me drown and god says i sent you a boat the marines a helicopter right so i mean that's it comes right out of right this exactly that that we have to take those steps or 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 things can't open up pam is there some uh, commentary on the relation of the Masitzak to the Bana, since it's the same word, like here we're not supposed to look to God, and there with the same Ma, God is providing food for our people? Nice. Now, I just wondered if there's something you know. I mean, we could look at all the occasions of Ma. Yeah. Right, and and because it's an interesting thing to do. Like there there are places where Ma gets really seriously unpacked, right, by the rabbis because because they compare some instances. I haven't seen Mana with Matitzak. Where I go with Matitzak in a parallel is the moment that God takes note of the people and their suffering happens just after the people Titzak. The people cry out. And then very next sentence is, and God took note of the people and their oppression. So for me, Titzak, right, is this thing about God couldn't act until they cried out, but crying out is not enough, right? So crying out until we object to our own situation, until we are ready to stand against the reality that is, nothing can happen. But once we do that, we have to take some action. We can't just keep crying out, what was me, what was me, right? So for me, that's an important parallel of Tzitzak. There seems to be an inconsistency, though, in the translation, because on the previous page, the final list said, God will battle for you over peace, so it's Moses saying. But then, by saying, then Adam said to Moses, why are you crying out these that's what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I mean in terms of up until now, he's actually followed what God has predicted because God has told him what is going to happen. At this point in time, Moses is getting you know towards the flat, toward the Red Sea. He's not aware of what's going to happen, and therefore would be waiting to get some sign from God. I mean, Moses could not possibly be aware that the sea would split. Up until now, he's been told by God what will happen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there seems to be an inconsistency in, in, in terms of saying, of, of God criticizing Moses for crying out. So, it, it's way. possibly not critical. It's possibly instructive. That God is saying, calling out to me isn't what's going to be effectual. Daber, El Israel, talk to the people. You have, you have to address them and let them move forward. Th- that's what's going to do it here. I mean, is the translation, why are you crying out in the Hebrew? Because I don't know. Is that an accurate translation? Yes. It is. Right. So we said either there's a scene missing where Moshe's actually crying out to God, or, right, it's that it's not in response necessarily to Moshe doing it. It's God already preempting Moses with instruction, as you've said, Moshe needs instruction. He's only known to look to God and he's not gotten what he needs. So God is saying, don't bother coming to me. You need to talk to them. 
and let them move. That's what has to happen right now. So it could be exactly what you're saying, that Moshe's getting his instructions. Yes, Daniel. If you, if you put yourself in the place of Moses and you are a responsible leader who really does care about people genuinely and you want to lead them well and say, if I were him, I'd have a lot easier time telling the people, move forward, take the step. If I knew by raising my stick, I would run forward. <laughs> like, right? That is not a small detail. That's right. I'm not going to send these people if I know that I raise my stick. And sharks are going to come and eat them all. Right. And the waters won't divide. You know, so right. That, that's... So it's not just the people who have to trust, right? It's their leader. But where, where's Nachshon in all of this? That's a midrash. It's a good one. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so right, so there's a midrash, right? That 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 they that the waters wouldn't part, didn't part, right? Until uh, Nachshon Abinadav uh, goes into the water and walks all the way until the waters. The moment the claw, the waters close over his head, it affects the miracle, and they part. Um, a very famous midrash about somebody's got to be the first to jump in. So, Daniel, to your point, Moshe isn't told, raise your staff, the water will part, right? It's all going to be okay. Moshe said, Moshe's told, tell them to move forward. So part of the question I think you're, I mean, part of what you're raising is, it's not just the people who have to trust, it's Moshe. Their leader has to be ready to send them into the depths because God said so. But my point is, Moshe would have an easier time doing that if he knows this next little phrase. Because if he knows, it doesn't take as much faith. (laughs) If he knows, it's not the same as exactly what you said. I love this people. Why would I send them into the water? He does so. He finds out right then. Right, but I thought what you were saying was it's interesting that that the order is that he's he's to tell them as their loving, responsible leader, move forward into water that is shark laden, and he has no instruction that it's going to open. You thought that's what I was saying. Yes, because he doesn't know that. Tell them to move forward happens. Tell them to go forward, and you lift up your staff and stretch out your arm over the sea. And split it. Right. But if we pause at the moment of tell them to move forward, if we pause, the rabbis, the rabbis have a big pause there is all I'm saying. Right? In that moment, tell them to move forward makes no sense. Unless what's being asked is for us to move forward before there's any promise, before there's any evidence, before there's any proof that that's going to open. <laughs> Right? It makes no sense to tell them to move forward. And that's the paradigmatic moment for all of us. We look forward and say, it'll kill me if I go that way, and it'll kill me if I go back. There's no way I'm completely stuck. All right. So if we, we're going to pause for one more comment and then we'll go. Sarah? Uh, yeah, it'll kill me. But in that moment, if they move forward, they discover their own strength. So it's not all God. It's finding the strength in yourself. Right. That is the challenge. To take those first steps forward. Because that's the hardest. Once you take those first few steps, right, 
lots of things flow from there, Robert. Well, but it really is a lesson for all of us at the now because going back is just not an option. It's just not an option. Period. And it's you know, an instinct that we have it, to it, go it, back. It's, it's, but, but whatever is going to happen forward has got to be the way it's going to be. It's going to be going forward. And you've got to have to make it happen. Or else. It's just not, there's not an option. There's not an option to go back. Time goes, well, there, time goes, there, no, but time goes one way. And, you know, and you, you start reflecting on what could have, should have, you know. Uh, that's not life. It's our, what I love about our tradition is it's honest with us about our instincts as human beings, right? So the instruction is you can't go back. That's because the chariots are behind you. Sorry, you can't. And you're going to want to. And the only way is forward. Absolutely. Roseanne? It also, to me, is a, um, it's a strangely dangerous part of the Torah because it, I think it's given a lot of fuel to um, cult leaders. Mm. Know, for their for their flock to blindly, you know the Jonestown. I'm sure he he said take this because <laughs> you can't go back. You know we're moving forward to a better world or whatever they tell the people that blind faith is in me. You know I am the leader now. I am the direct um, recipient of God, and you need to have faith in me. Like, Moses, you know. Right. So it's a bit dangerous. But just to be clear, Moshe's not saying have faith in me. Moshe never says that. No, but I know. I'm just saying that. No, I get it. I, I get it. That these cult leaders, I think, probably use this in their arsenal. Cor- correct. So, so that is why it is critical, critical that God appears to the entire people at Revelation. That moment is not a small moment. We are the only tradition that has revelation be to the entire people for this reason. And when is that moment? Sinai. Sinai. When Moses comes down with the tablets? No, God speaks to, to everybody. God makes manifest God's presence. to ed- The mountain starts trembling, smoke, lightning. The people saw lightning. I mean, saw... The thunder. Saw thunder, (laughs) right? They heard the light. I don't know. So one of those that you're not supposed to do, right? So it's God reveals God's self to the entire people, and and the entire people are told the shinantam levanecha v'dibartabam. You will learn these words and you will teach them to your children. They are not in the hands of a saint or a prophet or a priesthood that excludes you as an Israelite. The the people have seen the manifestation of the divine in the ten plagues in Egypt. They have seen the wonders, the miracles that God has performed on their behalf, and Moshe's asking them to trust that. The rabbis go further and say, and, you know, you're going to follow after a God you don't know, that you have not experienced. I'm not even asking you to trust something you have to doubt. You saw it in Egypt. I'm not asking you to trust me. You have experienced the power of this God to work on your behalf. So, so I want to be very clear, and I and I get it. I know that that this is a charismatic leadership, and that taken to an extreme, it is horribly dangerous. I think our tradition has been extraordinarily good about 
staying away from that. Not that we don't fall into it. Not that you can't see that all through the book of Kings and right. Like all the ways that we get in trouble, but the tradition itself has remained very democratic. You will have access to the sacred rites and the texts. No other ancient religion has that. And it's one of the things that continues to separate us from Christianity, right? That, that there isn't one person that we look to to save us. We, we collectively have to do that. In some sense, this paragraph was looked at as God giving Moses some leadership training. It was really in the story. Right. Get in the habit of being a real leader. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Yep. Nice. Okay. Question's very interesting. Ostensibly, God should know. So it's not really a question. God should know what? Well, why Moses was. I mean, God is supposed to know everything. So. So for God to say to Moses, why are you crying out to me? It's not like God doesn't know. The purpose of the question is for Moses. I think to look inside himself. Sure, it's an invitation. It's what? Not, what? Not, you yeah, know? Go do this. What go are do you? This. Not that he. Not that God doesn't know. Well, when my daughter starts whining, right? I'm like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> it's not in a question. It's not information I'm after. Right. What do you want from me? Right. Is what God's saying. What do you want from me? I I can't fix this without some other things happening. And here's what that is, right? What What do you want from me? Go. Go find something to do. He's I'm bored. Okay, what do you want from me? Moses literally has been called out as an individual to tell the people to potentially sacrifice their own lives. He's not telling them that. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to sit with the question a little longer. I'd like to move on. We are not even near the shear at the sea, and we have five minutes. <laughs> But Blanche is going to say something first. (laughs) Well, I have to come in with my story. Okay. Ruben and I were in New York visiting his brother, and we went to see a show on And the woman started screaming, fire. And Ruben said to her, don't say that And he looked at his brother and he said, believe me whether there's a fire or not. And I took off my heels and we scampered to an outside fire escape. And there was a fire. It was an electrical fire. And people came and they told us it was fixed and we could go back again. But to me, it scared the hell out of me because the people would have stepped on us. And so I'm giving my husband another pat on the back mm-hmm. <laughs> because you have behaved. Now, can I tell my story? <laughs> <laughs> Your version of the story? Or? <laughs> uh, lovely. All right, so whether there's a fire or not, we're choosing to trust that we're just going to, we're going to get out of here. We're going to move. We're going to move on and not worry about looking back. Did it actually, was it actually a real threat? Okay. Very nice. 19. Read fast. The angel of God who had been going ahead of the Israelite army now moved and followed behind them and the pillar of cloud shifted from in front of them and took up a place behind them. 
and it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus there was the cloud with the darkness, and it cast a spell upon the night, so that one could not come near the other all through the night. Go on. Then Moses held out his arm over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a strong cast wind. East wind. Uh, sorry, strong east wind all the night, and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split, and the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came in pursuit after them into the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Hold out your arm over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Moses held out his arm over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal state, and the Egyptians fled at its approach. But the Lord hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Okay. So we're familiar with this uh, imagery. Who hasn't seen Birth of a Nation, right? Cecil B. DeMille's you know, amazing uh, moment here. It, the text is internally inconsistent because, let's remember, one of the literary devices for communicating an experience that is ineffable is to mess it all up. It's on purpose. So they knew how to edit, right? They, they, they knew, wait a minute. Did, did they escape onto, onto land and then got thrown back into the sea? But wait a minute. It just said that they were already in the water and the waters came on them and drowned them. And in the poem at the sea, we're going to get yet another thing. Like they sank like stone, right? So it's, it's very, Confusing what exactly happened. We want a very linear, detailed, descriptive, moment after moment, movement after movement description as Western contemporary readers. That is not how ancient literature expresses gravitas, expresses itself. It's not by exactness. English is very exact. Hebrew is much more depth. Words have associations all the way down in Hebrew. In English, you look for the exact, correct, precise word. So we have to, you know, our willing suspension of disbelief, we, we have to, and we have to get out of our ethnocentric way of reading to appreciate the text, which here is all about how jumbled it all is. It's jumbled because that's our experience when we are going through utterly life-changing moments. It's a mess. Chaos. Chaos. It's it's disorderly because it's out of the ordinary. It's out of order. Um, And so that's what the text is trying to convey by being kind of tangled. The same thing is going to happen at Sinai. Moshe goes up. 
right? Moshe goes down, then God says, go down, but he already went down, and when did he go back up? Well, how did he get back up? Right? It's all kind of jumbled and tangled, and that's on purpose, to convey that this is bigger than a regular series of events that we TV watchers, right, are are so wedded to, you know, kind of that forward-moving, very clear, what happened? All right. So... So let's go to the shear. Let's go to 31. And Israel saw the wondrous power which Yudhei had wielded against the Egyptians and the people were in awe of Yudhei Ba'adonai, And they believed. They had trust and faith in Yudhei and in Moshe, Yudhei servant. 15, chapter 15. Then Moshe and the Israelites sang this song to Yudhei Notice the way that it appears in your text. Yes? An ancient scribal tradition. 387. In the green. <clears throat> 407. 407 in the red 387 in the red 387 in the green if you look at the text itself do you see how it's laid out a scribal them like this. Right? So half half of one and half of another on a whole one. Right? And then a whole one on the halves of the ones beneath it. And mortar, right, goes in between. Yes? You can't help but notice it looks like the walls of water in a so the people's task in Egypt, one of their one of their biggest tasks was bricklaying, brick making, and and the um, and Pharaoh conscripted people into into massive public building projects that were all about bricklaying. So they made bricks. We know from the pyramids, right? The labor it took to to do that, right? That. And so that's the, the bricklaying and what the Israelites experienced in being redeemed from that reality is walls of water on either side. I was looking at the English and I couldn't make any sense out of it. You have to look at the Hebrew. Nachon. Job security, my friend. Um, so if we... If we look at the text, so that's why the text appears, literally appears, uh, as it does. And, um, and, and so we get the introduction. And this shear, by the way, it became so important as our moment of becoming, our redemption from slavery being the moment for us of formation as a people, with a mission to be in relationship to a delivering God. It became so central that this piece of poetry we know uh, was used in the temple 
as part of the liturgy in the temple service. The Levitical choir uh, did this shear, and it became part of the daily liturgy. This is chanted every morning as part of the morning liturgy. I grew up chanting this in Hebrew Academy every single morning as part of tefillah. What's the, melody? the whole thing. And I will be happy uh, to do that. So that is how actually we're going to look at the Hebrew. Um, this is not trope. So this is not Torah trope. This is how we learned this. And, and so much so that I know this by heart. This is part of davening every morning. As at least this is how I was taught, um, as follows. Adonai Shemo Markivot Parovichelo Yara Vayam Umivchar Shalishav Tuv Uviyam Suv Teomot Yechasimu Yardu Bebim Slot Moab and Yemin Ha Adonai Nedari Bakoach Yemin Ha Adonai Tir Atsoyev Uverov Geon um sorry i shouldn't close my eyes Okay. <laughs> But can you do it in one breath? <laughs> right? 
thank God um, it happened. So incredibly um, rich, poetic uh, imagery. And looking, Ruben says, it's hard to make sense of the English, which is sort of why we've got a key, right, for some of this. So Az Yashir Moshe, clearly it's put in the mouth of Moshe, but the tradition understands that it was probably sung antiphonally. Right, that the the image even in ancient times would have been that Moshe sang, the people responded, either line after line, um, or he said a line and they repeated that line. Right, so the the imagery is is that of antiphony. Some of the rabbis say it would have been the men, and then the women responding because we see we see Miriam and the women right singing. Um, in in either case, it seems to be some kind of antiphonal. Uh, rendering of the poem, I will sing unto Adonai. So this is a song, Ladonai, right? This is a song of celebration, of victory in war, very ancient tradition. We see it all over Greece, right? Some of the literature we know best is actually some of these from Greece um, and Rome. So a victory poem celebrating yud heh vav who has triumphed gloriously, Yes? Um, horse and driver God has hurled into the sea. God's might. Aziv Zimrat. Yeah. My, my song and my strength is Yudhe Vavhe. And God will be for me Yeshua. Salvation. The Savior. This is God, my God. And I will lift God up. Uh, the God of my father, and I will, meaning my ancestors, and I will uh, exalt that God. Adonai Ishmil Chama Adonai. So we get uh, a very clear image of God as the warrior God here. God as young, virile warrior. Pharaoh's chariots and his army God has cast into the sea, and his officers has drowned in the sea of reeds. The Deep covers them. Yeah? Tehomot yechasimu. Tehomot, Tiamat, we have the ancient resonances uh, here that, that Yudhevavhe clearly controls Tehomot. That's very important. Yudhevavhe is in control of all of this, including Tehomot, the depths, and they go down into the depths like stone. Right? Your right hand, Yudhe Vavhe, the right hand is the hand of strength. For most of us, is most of us it's the dominant hand. It's your sword hand. Your right hand, right? Yamin Khadonai Nidari Bakoach. Glorious in Koach, in strength. Yamincha Adonai. Remember in Hebrew, the way you make elegant poetry is you repeat things. Your right hand that shatters Oyev, the enemy. In your great triumph, you break your opponents. You send forth your anger and it consumes them like straw. With the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. Right? Whenever God's nostrils flare, it's very bad. Bad things are going to happen. Right? This is an expression of anger. The flaring of the nostrils is a, is a, it's, it's an expression. It's not literally, right? It's it, it's how you say angry. Well, you say it, it's, it's hard to imagine on you, Reuben, <laughs> but I'm going to take your word for it. Um, right. So this is how the, right the waters pile up. 
the floods, right? Do we hear the resonances here? Right? Um, the floods stood straight like a wall. The deep froze in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue and overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will have its fill of them. I will bear my sword and my hand will subdue them. You made your wind blow. The sea covered them and they sank like lead in the majestic water. So again, we're getting sinking like stones. And then wait a minute, where are they? Right. They, they seem to be on dry land and then the water comes and covers them. But in other places, they're hurled into the right. It's it's kind of big. Who is like you? Here we go. Michamocha ba'elim Adonai. Who is like you among the celestials? Ba'al, Tiamat, Ra. Who is like you among them? Right? So early, very early poetry. One indication is that this is remnants of polytheism. Right? Who is like you among the gods? Now, of course, later tradition wants to say, well, what that means is that there aren't other ones, but that's not early Israelite monotheism. Early Israelite monotheism is yud Vafe conquers all of these. Who's like you in majestic holiness, awesome in splendor, working wonders. This, of course, became so beloved and such an important response to our moment of deliverance, our moment of becoming free. That moment, our response to that moment has become so important that it is part of every service we do. Yeah, bye, 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 bye. Doesn't exactly always get at, right, the, the gravity of the response of, oh, this is the force, capital F, that delivers, right? What is like that in the universe? Nothing compares. To the power, capital P, as Kaplan would say, the power that makes for redemption, the power that makes for salvation, the power that makes for our courage to walk into freedom. What is like that in this universe? Nothing is like that. It's that, right, that moment of huge awareness. Right. So you put out your right hand and the earth swallow them. In your love, you lead your people, you redeemed. In your strength, you guide them to your holy place, right? Amzu Kanita, actually, where am I in the Hebrew? 13. This, this nation that you have redeemed, um, you, in your O's, in your strength, you bring them El Neve Kodshecha, to to your holy place. This, of course, later is going to be what? The temple. The temple. The people hear and they tremble. Agony grips the dwellers of Philistia. Right? Falashta. Um, 15. The clans of Edom are dismayed. The tribes of Moab trembling grips them. This is the triumph of the local yud Vavhei over... Right? All the other peoples of the region see this, is the imagination of the poet. 
all the dwellers in Canaan, right, are aghast, right? They terror and dread descend upon them through the might of your arm. They are still a stone till your people cross over Adonai till your people cross whom you have. What does your translation say? Ransomed. Ransomed. Interesting. So when a person signs a marriage document, they are koneing the bride. They are acquiring the bride, right? By taking an action that says we now have an an exclusive kind of relationship and I acquire that in this transaction. That's what God has done with this people. God has performed an action in which God acquires this people in an exclusive, what we're going to call in our people's language, covenantal relationship, right? It is this action that entitles God at Sinai to say, you shall have no other gods before me because I kanitad you. I have exclusive rights to your loyalty because of this. Right. Uh, the people have to agree, but, but God says, right, that I redeemed you. I need you. Kanitad you. You will bring them and plant them in your own mountain. We know what that's going to be, right? Here's already, right? The, the point of this is not to leave them there like, okay, you're free, bye-bye, right? Have a good time, enjoy freedom, right? It's to bring us to the mountain and later to bring us to Nevekochecha, the place of your holiness. The sanctuary, O oh God, which your hands established. And this is generally where uh, it's closed is the closing of the poem after God is victorious as warrior, the closing is what? Forever. What is forever? Reign. God's reign. So now it switches from victory in war to because of that, God is now Israel's king forever. I deserve your loyalty as Melech because I delivered you from slavery. Right? So conquering kings said to peoples they conquered, I get your exclusive loyalty as your king, right? Because I won. So I saw a hand. Sounds very similar to the very beginning. Tell me. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's it repeats these images and these themes. That's one of the ways that the poetry has power, right? In in the ancient world. Um, I hate to sound kind of a pessimistic note, but... Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the people haven't really transcended. They've hardly transcended their panic. And now they've been delivered. So they've received redemption, but they have they really changed. And then you find, as you move on, that they haven't changed because they're still in their whole process. So... Doesn't that kind of give the impression that, well, you don't really have to change and you're going to 
God's still going to take care of you? It's a, it's a complicated question that deserves a lot longer discussion that we don't have right now. The, my short answer is we don't earn anything. We don't, we don't earn redemption. That's part of what makes it so powerful. We don't have to do anything to earn redemption. It is God's gift. Because that is how it should be. When I take this coupon and I give it to the grocer and the grocer gives me 50 cents back, back in the day when you got change for, right? Gives me 50 cents. The coupon was never supposed to be paper. The coupon was supposed to be redeemed. The coupon is supposed to be traded in. What it was always supposed to be was two quarters in my hand. That is the Jewish understanding of redemption. They, people are not supposed to be enslaved. God's people is not supposed to be slaves in Egypt. They're supposed to be free to worship God and make God their king. That's the point. We don't ever earn that. Chain, grace. Chesed, loving kindness. Rachamim, compassion. All of these are attributed to God that God gives it out of God's goodness and love for us that is unearned. Having said that, the expectation is the children of the ones who were freed will live into building the kingdom, right? So for us, remember, it's a collective. It's not just these people. It's we are B'nai Yisrael. We are their descendants and are obligated by their moment of freedom, hence our own. We are obligated to carry on the work of building the kingdom, of of making the covenant real in transforming the world we live in. I think we will close it there. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.